Welcome to episode nine of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Shomik Gosh. Now, Shomik is a principal at Bold Start Ventures, a day one partner for developer-first SaaS and crypto infrastructure founders backing the likes of Sync, Block Demon, Customer, Big ID, and Superhuman. Now, at Bold Start, Shomik invests in enterprise software with pre-product founders. Prior to Bold Start, Shomik worked as a growth stage investor at Top Tier Capital, where he invested in companies like Circle CI, Anaplan, Area One Security, and Shape Security. Shomik is also an angel investor, having invested in Coifin, Gitpod, and Logics Board, to name a few. Now, Shomik, I've heard wonderful things from our friend Kyle Harrison over at Contrary, so thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Shomik. Listen, it's such a pleasure to to have you on today. Now, you started investing at the ripe age of 10 years old, which is tremendous. I think buying your first shares in Kellogg's, if I'm correct. Now, talk me through this journey and how you made your way into the world of startups and venture investing today. Yeah, so the the first share was indeed uh, Kellogg's, which is the maker of Frosted Flakes cereal for for those who who don't know or haven't enjoyed it, uh, and it was it was something as simple as uh, I really enjoyed the cereal and uh, was chatting with my my father and and he just told me, hey, if this is something that you're excited about and you think that um, other people enjoy it, you know maybe you should go out and you should buy some shares. So I I I took my fifty dollars at the time uh, and bought some shares of it, but of course my 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 dad ended up uh, adding. Uh, a little bit more capital to that, and and uh, I still hold those shares today. It's it's something that I'll probably never sell throughout my life. Um, but but really, what the, what that started with was the it started me on this journey of um, really understanding what it's like to be a business owner, and I think that's the that's the difference in the investing men- mentality that I have is um, really thinking about it as being an owner of a business rather than an owner of of shares that, of course, will fluctuate uh, in the market uh, from time to time. But, re- uh, but you know, the way I think about it is owning these businesses for a period of anywhere from you know five to ten years or even longer, um, and 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 benefiting from that uh, from the owner making decisions that that benefit all stakeholders. Yeah, I'm really with you there on making it ownership and sort of taking it away from viewing it as shares and viewing it as actually owning these tangible businesses with people who are behind them and ultimately operating them and making them win. Because I, I find too often, you know, oh, I've, I have X shares in this or X shares in that, or I've invested in this or invested in that, when actually it's, it's fundamentally the people who you're getting behind and the people that you're backing. Do you think that that, that perspective has, has almost been lost over the last year and a half, Shremick? Uh, I, I, I think um, I think it's hard to say if the perspective has been lost, but I think it has uh, it has been swayed a bit to to market conditions, which uh, which, of course, has been these companies that uh, in the public markets and the private markets have seen exponential share price increases. And so a lot of folks, uh, you know, in, in some cases, rightfully so, were evaluating stuff much more on a relative value basis. And so what that would mean is that, you know, you, you look at a business's uh, metrics, you look at their, their growth, uh, maybe their, their gross margins. And if they have profit, you know, profitability or, or free cash flow, you look at that as well. 
Um, and then you look at it on a relative basis compared to the other assets that are out there. So you could say, hey, this business, you know, uh, I'm just going to use random names, but let's just say, you know, there's Snowflake is trading at, um, you know, 100x uh, revenue and Datadog is trading at 20x. Well, Datadog is a very high quality business. You know, maybe it should be trading at 40x revenue. Uh, and so I would buy that. So, you know, that, that was the environment that we were in. And it, it actually made sense, right? Because that's what was happening in both the public markets and then correspondingly in the private markets um, as, as businesses were going quite, quite rapidly. The interesting context that is, that is, you know, since changed with the, with the market kind of pullback is that now all of a sudden, um, you really need to pay a lot more attention to that absolute valuation, right? So, um, so no longer is in a relative game of, you know, well, what, what's Datadog trading at compared to Snowflake, but actually, okay, on the basis of the TAM that Datadog is targeting or the TAM that Snowflake is targeting, uh, sorry, total addressable market uh, that, that, that those businesses are targeting, um, how much market share do I think they can gain of that? Um, and then based on their underlying metrics right now, how far ahead of that am I willing to pay in whatever multiple that I use, uh, whether it's a, a free cash flow multiple or a revenue multiple or anything like that. And so that's that's been a big change, I would say, in the, in the public markets and then in the private markets that correspondingly has led to multiple compression where folks are looking at the public markets saying, hey, listen, these these great businesses are now trading at, you know, 15x forward, where before they were trading at 50x. Um, and, uh, and so then in the pro- private markets, that adjustment gets made as well. Yeah, I think it's so important to see it on that absolute level now and definitely seeing that effect of, or at least that trickle-down effect from the public markets now most definitely making its way, seeping its seeping its way through into the private counterpart. Now, Sherman, you joined Bold Start back in November 2019. Where did your interest for enterprise software really stem from? And I guess inside of that, what excites you most about the sector? So I actually started out uh, my career in in fixed income trading, uh, believe believe it or not. So I was in sales and trading, uh, working with uh, mostly kind of uh, trading loans and and some distressed debt. And at the time, what had happened was uh, Facebook had IPO'd, and I was trying to understand, you know, well how 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 was it how was it IPO'd? How were people um, paying what I thought was a very high multiple for? for you know, a social network, for a business that I didn't understand. So that's what led me into the world of, of, uh, of venture capital, startups, tech in general. I moved out to, to San Francisco, did investment banking, and from there had a career that spans you know, everything from uh, you know, growth stage VC, venture debt, uh, early stage VC, uh, which you know, I can describe more about what we do at Bold Start um, now, and then also um, joined even a startup as basically the first employee um, and, and, and tried to build out a number of things there. And so throughout that career, that's kind of where, um, I, I started getting interested in, in, in tech, um, broadly and, and trying and, and, and startups more specifically. And then within that, uh, the interest for enterprise software came from, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm first and foremost, as I, as I joined the, um, the industry, I, I came in as an investor. And so I was always intrigued by, uh, you know, what were the best business models out there? And, and, Again and again, I was drawn to to enterprise software companies, to Microsoft, to ServiceNow, um, Adobe, companies like that. And they were just incredibly sticky. They were solving massive pain points for their end users. Um, and their growth was phenomenal because of the fact that they were doing those things. And so um, 
what got me really excited first was the business model, which is you have these mission critical uh, platforms that people are building all sorts of things on top of. Um, and I would say, unlike the, um, the area of consumer tech, where you can have things grow very, very quickly, like, I mean, just massive exponential growth. But then at certain points, um, you know, the, the consumer interest may, may change over to the next thing. So Peloton, people use it all the time. They love it. Um, and then all of a sudden now the next exercise equipment comes out and they move to that. The interesting thing, though, with enterprise software is that, you know, if you're using, uh, you know, uh, the cloud services from any from AWS, GCP, Azure, um, it is very hard to just all of a sudden decide, hey, I'm going to turn that off because you built a bunch of systems on top of that. Your developers know how those how those systems work. Uh, there's a bunch of APIs that are interconnected to different things. And so to just say, hey, I'm going to shut this off and use something new is actually like a massive, massive, huge business decision that takes a lot of time and effort to re-architect. And so that's what got me really passionate about. And then since then, it's just been, uh, you know, a, a passion of mine. I listen to podcasts about it, read, a, read about it on the weekends, write a Substack stack on it. You know, it's just, it's just kind of become a part of my life. Yeah. I love the example you gave there, Shomik, on Peloton, right? You know, people finding the next cool piece of kit and then swiftly moving on. And I think when you start layering your business on top of these foundational technolo technologies such as, you know, AWS and Azure, as you mentioned, it's that stickiness, you know, it's that is what drives the sector and that is what keeps you coming back for more, so to speak. So I really, really enjoy that part. Now, you mentioned on Twitter last year that shipping, hiring, and culture are three key indicators of success you look for when investing pre-product at Bold Start. What makes these characteristics stand out in your eyes, Shimmick? So I think what we look for is, is actually is mainly two things, which is um, shipping velocity, meaning product shipping velocity. How quickly are you putting out uh, stable um, quality product into the world and then also hiring velocity. So how quickly are you hiring people into the organization to then produce that software, right? And to distribute that out into the market. And the interesting thing about those two components is culture is actually kind of best addressed. Like cult culture is kind of this soft term that uh, can seem a bit nebulous to founders. And so we've, we've constantly been striving to try and figure out, well, what are better metrics or better, uh, um, you know, better just kind of hard tactical things that we can point founders to so that they can see that, hey, is our culture being formed in the right way at the right time? And it's very hard to answer that question. And I don't think you'll ever be able to truly. But, you know, one of the things that we thought about was basically these two vectors of uh, shipping velocity and hiring velocity. And what's interesting is you want to see both of those scaling together. And I'll give an example on each. So let's say that shipping velocity is going really fast, but hiring velocity is not increasing. What that then means is that you probably have figured out a culture that works for, you know, the, the 10 people that you have at the company right now. But if you're not able to hire and, and, um, and maintain that that velocity, then something's breaking, right? In terms of that human communication of how you would work if you add, you know, five more people, something's breaking. So you have to think about, well, okay, is this culture here because we've all worked together, we understand how we all, you know, do things so that that creates this speed, but then, you know, we, we can't extend that to others. And so we really need to figure out and be introspective on how we would do that. The flip side is now, let's say you're hiring like crazy and it's growing really quickly. 
but then you're seeing actually the product velocity start to slow down. And so then that means that you probably um, haven't figured out you know, how to get those, those working groups, those smaller working groups to, to, to get together, how are decisions going to be made? And the most interesting thing about culture in general is it's really the expression of how decisions will be made in an organization at any point in time. And so sometimes uh, you basically have this balance between what decisions need to be centralized, meaning, you know, they need to make their way up to, to management or even to the, to, the, to the CEO and to the executive team uh, versus what can be decentralized, what can individual contributors make on a day-to-day basis, um, uh, you know, at that point in time. And so that expression needs to, that, that, that ability to know what to do needs to happen um, uh, throughout the org and needs to be understood. And so that's something that, that, you know, we see the best companies that are scaling really quickly on both the product and the hiring side are able to do. Uh, and so that's something that we try and guide our founders to as well, because that's the key determinant of, of early stage success especially at the pre-product stage when you don't have anything besides, you know, trying to build that initial product. Yeah, I agree with you there, Showmaker, that measuring culture is hard. You can't add one unit of culture here or detract one unit of culture there. So the way you frame it in that at least being additive to product and hiring, those are the two critical inputs that can really lead to that benefit for culture. So, yeah, great, great framing there. Speaking of which, what are some of these ways in which founders can start to develop a great culture from such an early stage? The interesting thing about that is it's, it, will, it will kind of, uh, it, the answer, I guess, is it depends, um, which, which is really that it depends on the founder, right? Culture comes right. from the, the, right. the founders. And so the interesting thing about that is, the um, each founder will have a different way of of expressing the culture and also building a business around that culture that makes sense for who they are, for the product they're building, uh, for for areas like that. And so um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're doing something that's a very top down, uh, um, you know, you're building firewall software, right? So that's going to affect that's going to usually be a, a pretty large enterprise sale. It's going to affect a number of users um, and, and, and so there, the, in, the, the, those little like kind of decentralized decisions that you may want to make as an individual contributor at different steps along the journey, they're going to affect a whole heck of a lot of people, um, at, at once. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's usually a pretty heavy product that, uh, you know, the enterprises are paying a lot of money for and, and things like that. So from a cultural perspective, you may actually want to be a little bit more, um, uh, careful about what changes are being made and so on and so forth. So that, that may lead to much more of a centralized uh, kind of, you know, process oriented check in uh, before, before decisions are made that, are, that might affect all those folks for something that's a little bit more decentralized, right. Where maybe say it's being, it's more kind of, uh, you know, product led growth. It's, it's, it's individual user adopted uh, things like that. As the surface area expands, you certainly have more users that are using the product, but, um, but from a cultural perspective, you can actually still have, you know, more more decisions kind of almost made at the edge um, at those at those individual contributor level uh, um, to to adjust the, uh, the product or to change a marketing message or something like that because of the fact that um, it's not necessarily having that same weight or impact on a you know massive enterprise level as it is uh, uh, maybe to an individual user. And so that's kind of the, this balance of of 
you know, what we see is, is, is the culture maps to the founders. Um, and so sometimes you have, and, and the founders map to, you know, their product and their go-to-market. And so we see those all kind of melding together. Um, and so the best thing to do is kind of identify, you know, you as a, as a founder, you know, what you're looking to build, what sort of product you, you want to build and who you are personally and who your co-founders are. Um, and then kind of expressing those in a written framework, right? How do you make those decisions? And so uh, is it is it going to be, you know, like, do you, do you like brutal feedback? In, in which case, then that's got to be something that you kind of lead your day-to-day uh, workflow and, and, and communications? Or is it something where, you know, you, you like to uh, sit down and, and discuss things together? So maybe that be- means written communication is going to be a bigger uh, component of your day-to-day workflow. But thinking through that um, and codifying those early on is really what helps to, to build a long-lasting culture. Yeah, I'm interested to just tap into that part at the end that you mentioned. What's your position on having a written process and communication over, say, compiling a few slides, slapping them together and sending them sending them across? In, in terms of, you know, having clearly laying your thoughts out on a sheet of A4, be it typed or written, versus a couple of colourful pages, where does that lie in your eyes, Shermick? I think there's a bit of a a balance that one needs to strike because the, the, so the great thing about written communication is certainly it requires you to think about the whole path of, of the product or the task or whatever that you're looking to accomplish uh, the strategy well in advance, codify that into something that one, your own brain when reading the document can understand. And then two, uh, it gives, you know, kind of more detail to others around how you're thinking about it, how you're framing things so that they can almost come up the, the learning curve a bit quicker. So I think that's, that's, that's definitely important. And that has a, a ton of great use cases. The question is the flip side um, is that sometimes that can slow down decision-making. If you have to write a, uh, a, you know, kind of written communication every single time that you're making a decision, um, then, then that certainly will slow things down. And so I think it's, it's, there's always that balance behind, you know, um, I think, again, it goes to if there's decisions that are going to affect uh, multiple customers, if there's decisions that will affect, um, you know, multiple stakeholders within the company, um, or even are, are, you know, kind of larger decisions in general, just in terms of the, um, uh, the different people that will be involved and, 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 and how many different things that that will touch. I think that makes sense to have written communication. But then in other cases, I, I do think slides um, can, can have a use case as well, where it's maybe something that uh, is a narrower scope um, and has a, a, a quicker iteration cycle, um, in which case you can say, okay, well, here's, here's the key points that we need to look at. Um, and, and now let's kind of discuss those from that framework. So there's that balance between, uh, you know, kind of what the task is, how many different stakeholders there are, there are and, and kind of the weight or the impact of that, uh, of that decision. Yeah, I, I agree with you there in terms of asking yourself who is the end user for this output and then framing it correctly from that. I guess within enterprise software specifically, Shermik, what trends do you see shaping the industry over the next 10 years? So at, at Bolt Start, you know, we, we invest in day, we, we invest day one in, in technical founders building products for, for the enterprise. And so what that looks like is, you know, literally most of our investments, uh, I think 80% of our investments in, in, in fund five, which was our, 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 uh, our most recent fund, or we're about to launch our, our fund six, but, um, 
what what we learned there was, I, I think eighty percent was literally pre-product at at company formation. So just two people, three people in a room, uh, um, starting their journey. And the interesting thing is to go that early and to scope to 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 be able to help founders at that stage, you really need to be able to understand. Uh, the product decisions that need to be made, the customer decisions that need to be made, what sort of hires are right for that for that um, uh, for that stage, and also you know how and when to scale because premature scaling is one of the things that that kills startups the fastest. And so, being aware of all those different components is something that needs to be done. So, the way that Bolt Start that we approach it is we kind of scope we we, we narrow down our scope of of things that uh, we believe we have a competency to help our founders with. And, and these are kind of longer term trends that we think are going to continue to uh, occur for a very long time. So a big one for us is, in general, the proliferation of software infrastructure. Um, over time, uh, these systems continue to evolve. Um, you know, we, we, we used to have monoliths. We're breaking into microservices. But now there's actually a trend back towards monoliths because the complexity of some of those microservices has become too big. Um, and so as those trends continue to evolve and shift, you, um, you're going to have different sets of tooling that integrates with different products um, and exposes different things to the end users that will continue this innovation at the, at the infrastructure level. So that's something that we are constantly uh, excited about. Anything that helps an individual developer do their job better, more efficiently um, in the security space. Obviously, tons of different attack vectors are opening up every single day um, uh, just from the, you know, one using the cloud and cloud services, but then even uh, stuff like using uh, machine learning models or uh, or just different areas that are now uh, new attack vectors for for um for for threat actors and so those are different areas that we're very excited about the flip side is we're also excited about things like the future of work and um and so we're i think increasingly companies are embracing uh, hybrid work right so in-person hubs with some remote uh workers as well and that is a very challenging thing from a cultural standpoint to to keep people close to have those kind of water cooler discussions that we all know and love um and and also to just uh you know have that tight feedback loop between uh, employees on, on problem solving and, and, and decision making and, and things like that. And so that's something that we continue to be highly excited about um, in terms of uh, what, those, what those trends will do. And then the final aspect that we really like to focus on is, um, is also in the, uh, in the space of, of cryptocurrency, so, uh, uh, or cryptography, I should say, in general. Um, we, we are very excited about the trends that are happening, um, not only in the uh, decentralized finance world, but also just, I would say, uh, in, in the, the decentralized kind of ecosystem that, uh, that the crypto and Web3 world is creating. And so within that, we think there's going to be fundamental building blocks that need to be created, uh, such as, you know, authentication, authorization, um, you know, uh, everything from, from payments infrastructure, from security uh, from, you know, all, all these just different building blocks that will create the, the decentralized applications that we'll see in the future. And so those are those, that kind of infrastructure, that building block level is something that we're highly excited about to unlock the future potential that, you know, we think, uh, may be coming in, in the next, you know, kind of three to five years. Yeah. I really like that. I think from at least bold start positions, you know, in investing 80% pre-products at company formation, I think it's so wonderful to be, to be partnering with these founders from such an early position. 
How do you make of this with the current climate that DC is currently presented itself in? And I guess from that show, mate, you know, what's your position now on backing founders in terms of how much money you're allocating and at least the support you're now giving them in these in these trying times? I think the most interesting thing about the pre-product or, or early in product stage is that you can have a really, in fact, not you can, you should have a really lean team to to iterate on the product, on the go-to-market, and just in general on decisions as quickly as possible because you're searching for product market fit. And so one of the interesting things, again, I, I said the, the, the thing that um, usually leads to startups failing is premature scaling. So hiring uh, too quickly ahead of where you are, um, uh, not having product market fit or even having early product market fit when you do that. And then all of a sudden your burn rate, how much you're spending goes up, uh, but you're not able to reach those next milestones that you need to hit to unlock, you know, whether it's future funding or even uh, uh, future customers. And so then that leads you into a cash flow problem where, uh, where, you know, you've scaled too early and now have run out of money. And so the interesting thing about the early stage is that um, if you find the right kind of uh, partners uh, from a funding perspective to work with, um, hopefully those, those folks will help guide you into um, making sure that that search for product market fit is happening with the leanest amount of resources possible to be able to test and iterate uh, and arrive at the right conclusion. And so that's something that we're constantly talking with our founders about. So that they're relatively um, sheltered, I would say, to, to a point uh, in this environment because you have at least two years of runway uh, to go and build your, your business. Um, but also, you know, from, from a perspective, from a Bold Star perspective, we're not asking our founders to go out and scale uh, super quickly. We're asking them to scale thoughtfully, which means deliver quality product to end users who love the product and, and, and who show that they're using it within their daily workflows. And until we see that, we don't really think that, you know, the time is there to start scaling. And so that's kind of where I would say um, we're, we're fortunate to work with, uh, with great founders, but also fortunate to have that, that ability to be able to finance our companies for at least two years, if not more. Uh, and so that our founders can really just focus on building exceptional product for their end users. Yeah, I, I really like that, that, that framing, Shermik. And I think going slightly further, how are we going to see these public market valuations affect those in enterprise software now? Because when we look at big tech within public markets, you know, we, we've seen a significant downtrend absolutely in, in bear market territory. What's the effect going to be and where are we going to see it land? We get, well, I think we're going to see it. Uh, so right now we're seeing it actually more so at the at the growth stage. Uh, and so w what that means is companies, let's say that um, uh, probably from Series B on uh, where they're raising uh, larger rounds of funding, call it, you know, 30 million or more. Um, and in the past, uh, call it two years, they've raised at valuations that have been quite high. So, you know, we were seeing rounds getting done at, you know, 50x, 100x, you know, next year's, uh, next 12 months ARR, right? So forward-looking uh, metrics. And again, that made sense when the public market comps were also trading at that same range. So it, it was it was a completely, you know, rational thing to do at the time. Uh, since then, right, 
that that has drastically changed. Like we've said, you know, the, the, the highest quality companies right now are trading at, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 X forward revenue. Um, and so the, the growth companies that that kind of raise at those valuations now have to uh, have to grow into those valuations. Right. So now um, that next round, you have to have a lot more ARR. Um, to then, you know, be able to get an up round that, that, that makes sense. And so I think that's the biggest change that's happened, um, especially at the, at the growth end of the curve has been, um, that readjustment to multiples. Now, the interesting thing though, is that like, even though the multiples may have, uh, uh, changed, that doesn't necessarily mean that the end user demand or the market, uh, for this has changed at all. And, and so, you know, everyone's talking about, inflation, um, you know, interest rates going up, uh, you know, the labor market tightening, all these sort of components. But the interesting thing is, you know, when the labor market tightens, um, companies increasingly need something that will help them improve their efficiency, right? They're trying to improve their free cash flow, their profitability, uh, and extend their capital. And so the interesting thing is, is enterprise software is probably one of the best products to help with that. Because what is everything that enterprise software is doing? It's helping with the coordination between humans and machines uh, in a more efficient manner. And so all of a sudden, um, you, can, you may see actually in some cases, uh, companies kind of using more software products to gain more efficiencies out of um, uh, to, to get them further, right? And improve their, their, their cash flow metrics. Um, and and that's, that's really interesting. You know, like if we were to use... Uh, you know, even a security example, right? Like something like security, you could use to uh, to decrease the risk of of fraud, right? Uh, from from your customers or from uh, from potential attackers. Um, and and so, if you if you're able to do that from a security perspective, decrease that risk of fraud, um, then all of a sudden you actually have you know higher revenue coming in, more profitability, so on and so forth. If you're able to create something from a future of work perspective that makes your knowledge workers um, more uh, more quickly and able um, easily able to disseminate information um, then all of a sudden that also m- means a tighter feedback loop between you know product sales go to market whoever uh, which can then lead to uh, faster decisions being made and also faster uh, customers being served in that in that manner and so you have this kind of interesting efficiency angle to enterprise software that I think is this weird dichotomy to have between, you know, the, the valuations and the multiples compressing, but then in the meantime, actually, in some cases, the, the usefulness of the products actually increasing. And so that's this weird thing that we have to hold into our heads. But what's important for founders is to realize that you need to have that capital stretch a lot further to grow into your valuations. Otherwise, that next round of funding will be a lot harder to, uh, to, to, to take on, especially at the growth stage. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you there. I think, you know, with these rounds that were raised being at, let's call it, an exotic valuation, right? We've now seen this compression of multiples down to 6x, maybe maybe 5x next 12 months revenue. Do you see these companies being able to grow into these valuations or are we going to see an uptick in down rounds? It's, it's very interesting because I think... Um, you know, the answer is, is both that you will see increasing down rounds um, or, or, or flat, flat to down rounds uh, with companies that aren't able to grow into their valuations. Um, and in some cases, by the way, um, you know, a down round may not be 
the uh, the worst kind of medicine to take in this environment, especially if you've raised at a significantly high valuation. Because from a dilution standpoint, uh, you're, you're you're still actually doing all right, um, and it may hurt employees that were uh, were hired at that time. But at the same time, at least the business has the capital to be able to survive to meet the. Uh, the milestones they need to achieve to unlock future rounds of capital. And so I would say, you know, a lot of founders get very scared about um, taking taking down rounds. And in some cases will actually take, you know, maybe uh, flat to up rounds, but with structure in the term sheet. And so what that means is that all of a sudden they'll take, you know, call, call it a, a higher um, multiple on, on, on preferred equity. So sometimes it's called a 2X preferred or something like that, where all of a sudden investors – um, instead of just getting their money back, uh, are, are mandated are to, to get at least two times their money back. So I, what I would recommend to founders is, is those are, those can be, uh, you know, very, very challenging, um, because they change the dynamics of, of, you know, the investor and, uh, and, and employee balance. And then also acquirers and, uh, and future sources of capital all look at that and that can kind of send different signals and, and change the dynamics. So, um, so down rounds are not necessarily bad things, especially if they will help you, uh, to, to keep the business surviving. And so I think that's something that we'll see more and more. The flip side though, is that, um, you know, companies with the best culture, uh, will be able to continue executing because what's going to happen is you're going from a time of excess to a time of being lean. And so where before employees were given, for example, stipends to, to set up their home office um, and, uh, and, and, you know, maybe gym stipends and things like that. Now those are in many cases being tightened or, or uh, taken away entirely. And if your whole culture was based on the premise of, Hey, you get these perks and this is why you love working here. And we're, we're so great. Um, then, you know, employees may leave, but if your culture is actually uh, much more around um, people just love the work that they're doing and, uh, and feel like they're achieving a lot in their day to day, um, then they will usually be able to stay through that uh, and, and even in some cases get even more excited about the fact that um, now everyone's together and rowing, rowing the boat in the same way to, uh, to achieve the outcome. And so what we've seen time and time again in, in previous downturns is um, the best businesses with those cultures, they band together, they, 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 uh, they accomplish a lot with a lot leaner um, resources and in doing so, they achieve. They they come out on the the out the outskirts of this, on the outside of this, um, a much stronger business, well capitalized, and taking market share from others. Very very wise advice there, Shomik. I would uh, I'd be very grateful to be one of your portfolio companies there, at least in the receiving end of that. Now, taking a step back and seeing it from more of a holistic view, what's the greatest lesson you've learned from your in- investing career so far? I would say the the greatest lesson is probably the fact that it all comes down to people. And it's it's so funny. I, I like to say that if I could redo uh and, and, and go back to to university, I would probably study uh the topic of industrial organization because I think it's it's more relevant than I than I ever thought to uh to the success of, of building a business. But the interesting thing is that um, as much as we can talk about, you know, products and we can talk about sales team and channel partnerships and, and all these different components, 
the underlying thing behind all of them is there's people that are building those systems, those processes, and those interactions with with customers, uh, with with you know even just uh, what 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 the actual product is being built is an expression of uh, product managers, designers, engineers, and engineers all working together uh, to accomplish something. And so that that's kind of the biggest lesson for me has been. Um, that people drive all of these. And so at each phase shift of the company, and what that means is when you, when you go from, you know, even five to 10 employees to 20 to 50 to, you know, 50 to a hundred and then so on and so forth. Um, each time those communication channels will break down, uh, the, the, uh, decision-making will, will change, right? Because all of a sudden now, uh, either one, there's new folks that, that people are reporting to. Um, there's more people that own different resources that uh, existing employees have to understand the shift and 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 sort of uh, make sure that they're okay with that. And so those continuous changes along those phase shifts are something that um, the successful companies need to manage and really study. And so the funniest thing is, I think uh, the evolution of a CEO is really interesting. Where in the in the beginning days, you're you know, you're, you're usually building the product, you're tightly iterating with customers, you're going out, you're the first salesperson, um, you're the first marketing person, you're the first recruiter, you're just doing all these different things. But then as those phase shifts occur, and you have more people owning those roles, um, and doing those very well, now you have to almost become much more of this, uh, this coach that's, that's analyzing the playing field and saying, well, how do I best assemble uh, the team uh, to to go after the different things that we need to do, and um and and so that's the biggest lesson for me is just um, studying those people interactions, um and and when challenges do come up, there's usually a couple people at least in the company that know specifically why that problem is occurring, and so if you can unblock or um or just enable a way for that communication path to open up so that the individual contributor who's seeing that hey the product's got a lot of bugs versus, you know, the sales team is excellent. So they're still selling it uh, like, like crazy. Um, but but you have these bugs building up that are going to affect usage and affect future, future sales. If that IC is not able to surface that issue um, and, and and get that handled, that is something that can be a challenge and, um, and, and cause companies to fail in the future. So that's the really interesting part is continually trying to assess the field assess the company organization and the, and the organization structures and change those at the different phase shifts of the company. Great advice there. I really like that. And so, so true, Shomik. Everything at the end of the day, it boils down to people. It boils down to the ability to organize and effectively execute. So that rings very true in my ears. Now, I know you're also a prolific angel investor's with a portfolio of many notable names, what direction would you point those who are looking to dip their feet in and begin angel investing themselves? The, the first thing I would say with angel investing is that it, it, it all comes from uh, the, like the best way to do it is to start with your network. And so, you know, you probably have somebody who's, who's starting a, uh, a small business um, that could be in tech. It could be in, you know, uh, making cupcakes. It could be, uh, you know, doing uh, doing a number of different things. But it comes from that relationship, from knowing that person, knowing who they are, wanting to support them in the journey, 
and then giving them, you know, whatever capital you can afford uh, to give them to, to, to just help, you know, help be along for the journey and, and have some skin in the game in that journey. And so, for example, uh, one, one of, uh, one of my, my angel investments is a company called Logics Board. Uh, Julian is a friend of mine from college. I know nothing about uh, the logistics and, and freight forwarding industry, but I know a lot about Julian and his brother Juan. And so, uh, so from that perspective, it was something where I just wanted to be involved. I wrote, you know, a very small check, um, but they were excited to have me on board. Um, and then since then, you know, have, have hopefully been able to help them a little bit, uh, with their business and also just, uh, just to just get to be along, uh, um, in this journey as, as they're building this company. And so that's where I would say for, for folks to start is really start at the edge of your network, right? Who are people that you are like, no matter what, you know, we all have those folks that we believe in that no matter what they do, we want to be, uh, we want to be involved in them. They're just, they're just special people that we know will get great things accomplished, and so start off with the smallest check possible. Um, uh, just be along for that journey. And then you'll learn what is happening. Um, learn how success occurs. Learn, um, you know, what kind of makes a good investment or what makes a good market. And then you can start to do that at a, at a, at a broader scale um, as that network expands. Yeah, you've also mentioned that the rewards are far more than just monetary how do those lessons learned and you mentioned there through this pattern recognition of success impact your future process when finding the next talented entrepreneur yeah the 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 funny thing is that of course um you know the monetary rewards can be substantial if you if you find a company that that does quite well but as we know with with all you know small businesses uh is that there's the, the risk of failure um, is quite high, right? And, uh, and and it could be from a number of reasons. It's It could be from competition. It could be from the people side of, of people not communicating well. It could be the, mar- you know, general market or economic conditions. And so within that, um, it's very hard to just kind of do something just because you're saying, hey, this is going to be a great monetary benefit to me. In fact, in that case, like, you know, you should probably just put some money into, you know, an equity index for the long term and, and hold that, right? What really you get the benefit from is just being involved with, with, you know, closely involved with people as they are starting something from scratch. And, um, and that's like the most exciting thing you could ever ask for, right? It's, you you get to celebrate as, you know, you see your friend or, or a, even if it's just an acquaintance, but an acquaintance that you're getting to know more and more better each day, you get to see them uh, as they make their first hire, right? As they make their second hire, as they sign their first customer, um, uh, as they, you know, ship their first product. And so there's all these little wins along the way that, um, that are just, I mean, just amazingly exciting, right? And, and it's, it's this kind of a dopamine hit that I would say you don't get anywhere else in terms of those little wins along the journey. Um, and, and behind each of those little wins, there's a ton of work right? There's a ton of just, you know, kind of blood, sweat and tears being put into accomplishing each of those things. And so learning from that and seeing, you know, what processes work, um, what sort of hires to make at, at what, at what time, um, you know, how does the product get distributed? Um, all these sort of things are something that you can, that will benefit, uh, your kind of learnings in the future from even one building your own business or, uh, building your own career, or also helping kind of the next, uh, the next founder that you choose to, to work with. And by the way, one analogy that I would say is just, you truly can find, um, 
you know, for example, I, I primarily, you know, I only invest in, in enterprise software, right? Um, but the interesting thing is I draw a lot of, uh, a lot of parallels to stuff that is completely outside of that. So for example, when I go to a grocery store, I'm always really interested to see what's, uh, what's slotted at eye level and then what's kind of below. And so if you notice, you go to, uh, in the US, you know, we use, we use Tide um, for, for laundry detergent. And so Tide is always predominantly right at eye level, right? And then you'll see, you know, kind of whatever the name brand is uh, or, or the store brand or whatever is kind of on the bottom shelf. Now that is specifically because Tide is paying a lot of money to that grocery store to, to stock that, to, to, to take that real estate, right? Because they're seeing brand equity, they're seeing um, higher propensity to pay because people don't want to stoop down to, to get it from the bottom shelf. Uh, they want to, you know, kind of take it from there. And then that also usually conveys some sort of brand quality, right? Hey, this is at eye level, you know, this is something I've seen on the TV commercials. This is probably something that's a good product. That same thing transfers over to enterprise software. So those same analogies of, in terms of, you know, kind of the real estate, which in this case is, you know, the, the, the screen in front of you, um, you know, the messaging that you put there, uh, if you're in, you know, kind of different marketplaces. So if you're, you're selling something through Salesforce at marketplace, well, that means you got a stamp of approval from Salesforce that, you know, your app is secure, that your app, um, uh, is something that, you know, kind of works for customers. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden now you can say stuff like, Hey, we augment your, uh, your Salesforce CRM with, you know, whatever that is that that product does. And so that's something that I think is really, um, an interesting component of, uh, of, of building software is that you can take all these different analogies from other parts of life, which is also the interesting thing about, uh, about angel investing, because you get to see those through different, through different areas, through different sectors, uh, and take those learnings into whatever area you're focused on. Such a great analogy there, Shomik, and it definitely rings true. I know I'm, I'm a real sucker when I'm wandering around the supermarket over here in London and see something eye level, it, it definitely is the most appealing. So in terms of how that translates across to business and specifically enterprise software as a whole is really, really fascinating. We'll now dive over to more things on a on a life perspective show Nick. so my first question here is when you think of success who is the first person that comes to mind and why so that one for me would would definitely have to be my my parents um my parents immigrant uh, were, were immigrants from india uh to to the u.s uh my dad came i think with 50 dollars in his pocket um and was able to, you know, pr provide for me and my sister uh, throughout throughout life. Right? They 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 you know gave us a great home to live in. Uh, we were able to, you know, play all the sports we wanted to, the, play all the instruments we wanted to, uh, and and we're fortunate to be able to go to the universities that we we all wanted to go to. And so I think it's something that continues to amaze me every day is um, is not only my parents, but but also just you know the other immigrants around the world. Uh, who are going to an, uh, an area with, you know, limited resources, uh, not many friends, starting from scratch and having to uh, just really, I mean, you talk about culture, like that's, that's, that's commitment to, uh, to creating something uh, from, from nothing and, um, and, and, and overcoming obstacles. And so, uh, so, you know, kind of success for me is, is the fact that, um, you know, any, any of those families that are starting uh, in a new environment, not knowing, uh, you know, what's going to come, um, and, and creating a stable, 
uh, life for for their for their kids um, and and for their kids' friends uh, is something that you know I, I define as you know one of the best areas of success. I really really love that example there, and yeah, absolutely, what a what a wonderful story. I guess going one step further, showing what does your perfect day look like? This is. This is such an interesting question. I, I don't think I've ever gotten this before. And so it's, it's something that uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about. But for, for me, I would say the perfect day is, um, is, is a day where, uh, one, I get to uh, get to go outside um, and, and, if possible, be able to see some sort of uh, body of water, whether it's a lake, a pond, an ocean, um, that that to me just gives me uh, a sense of calm and and uh, of beauty that uh, I think starts my day off in the right way, um, and then uh, I would I would say you know the, the rest of the day would be um, being able to you know kind of segment uh, my work life and my personal life um, to be able to uh, you know ha- build meaningful relationships in those in those time periods. Um, so from a work perspective, it would be. Uh, getting to know the founders, uh, the the talent that works at, at those companies, um, and just other ecosystem participants uh, on a personal level, not just at, at a work level, but but stuff like, for example, you know, what are the big things that are happening in their lives so that you can remember that the next time you're having a conversation that starts it off in just in a deeper manner than just kind of some surface, hey, you know, what are we doing for work? Uh, and then from a personal side, I think it's it's um, it's you know trying to we're, we're all on this journey of trying to build. Uh, um, you know, kind of lives for ourselves and, and for others uh, in the future. And I think um, that's something that, you know, I want to always have time to, to whether uh, enjoy the time or, or work on things that, that could be, uh, could be improved or, or whatever uh, throughout that journey. So a perfect day would be having the, the, the best time to, to be able to segment those things, uh, spend time on each of those thoughtfully, uh, and then be able to get, you know, a nice outdoor workout in so I can appreciate um, the fact that, you know, able to live life and enjoy what I'm doing. Really like that idea of visiting a body of water, whatever form it might take. And I think, you know, me being based here in, in, in London, Shomik, making my way down to the murky River Thames is probably something a little bit different to uh, to what you're experiencing across the pond. But, uh, but nonetheless, I think getting out in nature and uh, having some time with yourself and giving at least giving yourself some, some breathing room within the day to be alone with your thoughts. And I think that's definitely where some of, some of these best ideas come from. So that really, really resonates my end. Now, 24 hours before this podcast, I asked Twitter for questions they want to hear. Now, we had a great response, so we'll dive right in, Shomik. So first off the bat, Kyle Harrison, he asks... What are your thoughts on crossover investors moving earlier into a stage where founders benefit from investors who actually get involved, such as Bold Start? Where do you see yourself on that? Kyle always asks the hard-hitting questions. I love it. Um, but I, I, I think what's interesting is that um, you know it, the the product that venture that that venture capitalists are offering to to founders is going to be different, um, at, at every, at every single stage. And so, um, for us at bold start, you know, we focus on being that day one partner, uh, from the beginning, right. To help, help founders with all the early stage components of building a business. Um, 
we think that it's something that we're, we're quite good at just because that's all we focus on. Right. And that's what we've spent, uh, you know, the last 12 plus years of bold starts life doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, that being said for some founders, right. That may not be the product that they need. Perhaps like for, for some reason, they, they, they already know all the different things that, uh, that will occur, um, in those early, in those early days. And so, you know, if they take, uh, you know, 10, 20 million off the bat, they can build uh, the the right product and the right business without um, without burning too much capital and scaling prematurely. And so, I think what's interesting is um, all these different financial products that are being offered from you know the you know some of the crossover funds, which you know won't take a board seat, uh, you know, kind of a little bit more hands off to um, to some of the uh, funds that where, you know, it will be a board seat. There'll be a, a ton of operating partners and platform partners that are there to help you with all the different aspects of the business. It's just great for founders because some founders will, will really need uh, those components or enjoy having those. And some will say, you know, that's not something I really, really care about. Um, and they can choose what they want. So I think that's, it's just in general, great for founders and, and, and glad to start to see it happening more and more. Absolutely. Now, he also asks, what's your take on NYC versus SoCal versus Miami? And at least how Boldstart thought about moving when they've been known as a NYVC firm. So it's funny, we, we, we had our headquarters in New York for, for quite a long time. But in fact, um, you know, I would say over half of our portfolio is, is across uh, Europe and Israel. Um, and then, you know, the other half, uh, spread across the U S and Canada. And so I, I think it's, um, it's funny cause for us, you know, uh, the, the, a- any certain city or anything like that, uh, we, we, we don't really have a, a strong opinion on that. We, our opinion is just people should live where they want to live, uh, and, and enjoy life. Cause that will make them better at their, at their jobs. Um, but, but for us, what's most important is, uh, is kind of helping our founders, do what, do what they need to do, which is they're building remote teams, uh, across the world. And so we want to be able to best serve them in that way. And the way we've been able to manifest that is actually having the team kind of distributed, uh, across different areas. So we can all hop on a plane and get to different areas quickly, uh, um, to, to help our founders as needed. So it's, it's, it wasn't, uh, any sort of like major, you know, kind of decision. It was actually kind of, uh, something that we, we, uh, we sort of didn't have to think much about. It. We were just like, "Hey, this makes sense. Everyone should live where they want to live." Um, and uh, and being distributed makes us be able to serve our founders, you know, maybe even faster than than before. Love that. Now, CJ Gustafsson he asks, "Should all companies lean into product led growth and product led sales, or does it only fit certain software models?" Only <laughs> it, it 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 only fits. I would say certain. Uh, software models, and so again, if we were go to go back to that, um, to 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 that example of let's say you know you're building uh, um, you know a, f- a firewall product, that's something that affects the whole organization, the whole company. Um, to do something that's so-called product-led growth um, is a bit tougher there because what that would that would require is um, having an individual user be able to try out the product. Uh, but then uh, go to all the different uh, stakeholders who would interact with that product and say, hey, this is the one that we want to use, right? And so that that's a bit tough because the implementation of that product requires just so many different stakeholders within the enterprise that's 
that's buying that product. Um, the there's so many different stakeholders, so it almost makes a bit more sense to have it uh, more of a centralized, um, you know, kind of top-down sales where you're educating the customer on what you're doing. They're probably uh, doing a, a RFP, a request for pr- a proposal from from you know kind of other uh, companies as well to evaluate you know, that one product against other comparative products in the field, um, and then making a decision based on all of that. And so that's where I think it, it, it makes sense for kind of heavier, weightier products that affect the whole organization versus if you're serving an individual end user, um, and, and you may end up serving the whole organization, right? Like Datadog serves an end user, but then also serves, you know, massive enterprises across across the whole org. But when you start with that individual user, you can have a much more product-led growth motion where um, that individual user, you're trying to get them to, to, to be satisfied, to love the product um, uh, and expand that usage uh, throughout the organization. So that's the balance of, you know, I, I call it like a little bit like product weight, which is how heavy is that product? How, how much, um, how much, you know, how many stakeholders does it take to implement? How many stakeholders will be interacting with it on a daily basis? That's something that will probably, uh, affect whether it needs to be more of a top-down kind of educational uh, sale versus something that's much more, you know, kind of end-user usage-based. That's awesome. Now, final question from Twitter is from Billionaire Playboy. He asks, how hard will it be compared to today to begin a software company 20 years from now, bootstrapped from zero without raising money? Uh, so I am <laughs> I'm probably an optimist in, in, in this sense, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in general. And so I would say that it is getting exponentially easier to have the building blocks to build a business from uh, the, the, from, you know, even if you don't know uh, how to code, there's all these low code, no code tools to spin up a website, to spin up various applications um, uh, and, and, and just basically build any business that you'd like uh, using the tooling that's out there. So I think it's that trend is going to continue where it's going to be easier and easier to start a business and to have those building blocks to be able to uh, to accept orders in and deliver a product, whatever that product is to the customer. That being said, the flip side is as that does become easier, uh, that means, you know, hopefully what we'll see is more and more entrepreneurs uh, building businesses in various areas. And that means more competition, right? So uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it gets easier to actually build a successful business, but I think it will be easier to start a business um, from everything that we're seeing, just even on the legal side, uh, now being able to use, you know, resources like Stripe Atlas or AngelList, I think has um, AngelList Stack or or something like that, um, where basically you can just, (laughs) essentially it's almost as if you're like calling an API, you just... You just ask them, say, hey, listen, here's the base information. They spin up the documents to have you legal documents in, you know, less than a day or two. And all of a sudden, something that used to take, you know, a couple of months is taking uh, a couple of days. So I think it's going to be easier to start a business, but not necessarily easier to build a successful business. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there in that these processes are definitely democratizing access, but it's definitely up to the market as to, you know, who's going to be the winner, who's going to be leading leading the pack forward. Now, Shoming, I have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, last week we had Felix Sim, the founder of Salad Ventures on, and their question is, what's the one piece of advice you would give to founders in a bear market? That is a great question. I would say, uh, 
the, the piece of advice that we're giving to all of our founders right now is, um, is again, focus on your people. Um, and so right now, uh, everybody's hearing from, you know, the, the new sources out there from, uh, from their significant others, from their parents that the, uh, you know, the stock market's gone down, that interest rates have gone up, that, you know, uh, people are getting laid off from their jobs. And that is a very scary environment. Um, and so from a founder perspective, um, you know, what what matters the most is the people that you have in the business building that. And so uh, your job almost flips to becoming a little bit of, uh, a, you know, a therapist, a coach, um, and making sure that you can talk with your your employees um, and, and, and assuage them of their concerns, right? Um, and say that this is what we're building. This is how we're building it. This is what we're going to do to move forward. And for example, if you do have to make layoffs uh, to be able to extend the runway for longer and achieve the milestones that you need, being very clear with that internal communication, right? Of why this is happening, of, of, of why, it's, why it's occurred, how people's jobs are safe, um, uh, even, even though that, that layoffs had to occur. And then for managers really spending time doing one-on-ones with every single person, um, uh, and, and, and blocking off, I mean, at least three to four weeks, uh, uh, after that, um, blocking off significant amounts of time to just have, you know, uh, one-on-ones or open office hours or anything so that people can come and ask you and being proactive. It's not even a, a, a push approach, but you really got to, you've got to pull that in from folks, bring them in, chat with them, make sure you hear their uh, concerns because right now that's what's going to keep people around in your business for the long term. Brilliant answer there, Shomik. It's it's all about the people and reaffirming these connections in those trying times is is absolutely paramount. So I'm with you there. Listen, we've come to the end of the episode now, but it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and I'm so glad we got to do it. Thank you for the for the time, Alex. You are a great interviewer. Um, I I encourage everyone who who listens to subscribe to through the noise, um, the newsletter, uh, and, and also the podcast because you you are creating some exceptional content. Um, your Twitter threads are amazing, and uh, and and so thank you so much for uh, for having me on. Thank you to Kyle for for making this introduction, and I'm looking forward to listening to future episodes.